Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 28th of October. Today, 19 years after Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactors were destroyed by British and American warplanes, Iraq wants to rebuild its nuclear industry. It's been a long and fraught and ultimately fruitless history with nuclear energy in Iraq, but uh, now, six years after Saddam was ousted, the Iraqis are looking to have another go at it. Also today, fears grow for a British couple thought to have been kidnapped off East Africa. The, the pirates would normally contact the owners of the ship to, um, to demand a ransom, and they're often big cargo companies or shipping companies. It's difficult because the owner of the yacht is, um, is actually one of the hostages. And why endangered species of birds are fighting back? Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, it's Bill Overton with the news. Six UN staff have been killed after gunmen wearing suicide vests stormed a guest house in Kabul. In all, ten died, including three of the attackers, while nine have been injured. The Taliban's claiming responsibility, saying it's meant as an assault on the upcoming presidential election. It's less than two weeks before Afghanistan's voters go to the polls in the second round. The Guardian's learned Iraq has started lobbying for approval to again become a nuclear player. It's almost 19 years after British and American warplanes destroyed Saddam Hussein last two reactors. The Iraqi government's approached the French nuclear industry about rebuilding at least one of the complexes bombed at the start of the first Gulf War. Officials have also contacted the International Atomic Energy Agency and the United Nations to seek ways around resolutions that prevent Iraq's re-entry into the nuclear field. We'll hear from our reporter in Baghdad in just a moment. MPs are to be banned from claiming for their mortgages on expenses under proposed reforms to be unveiled next week. Jobs for family members in the Commons will also be prohibited. Sir Christopher Kelly, the chairman of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, has briefed opposition party leaders about his report, which says ministers will have to rent, not buy their second home, if they wish to receive taxpayer support. It's likely to cause uproar amongst MPs and especially the 100 or so relatives that work for ministers, either at Westminster or in their constituencies. The Unite Union, which represents many parliamentary staff, is now seeking legal advice on whether the ban on family members is lawful. Rescue teams looking for a British couple feared kidnapped by pirates are investigating a possible sighting. A yacht towing a small boat has been spotted in the search area, but it couldn't be confirmed whether it's the missing Lynn Rival. Paul and Rachel Chandler from Tunbridge Wells disappeared while sailing from the Seychelles towards Tanzania. One other news agency said it had been contacted by a pirate to say the couple were in our hands now. The Foreign Office said it's urgently investigating the claims and remains extremely concerned for their safety. Andre Agassi, one of the greatest players in modern tennis, has confessed to using crystal meth while a player. In his forthcoming book, he's also revealed he lied to the game's governing body when he tested positive for the highly addictive illegal drug by claiming he'd taken it by accident. Agassi says it happened in 1997, which is a difficult time in his life. Looking at the papers now, the Mail, as well as several others, report on how a teenager was found dead in a ditch after she'd gone to meet someone she had become friends with online. The Times looks more closely at the new rules on expenses for MPs, saying they'll be banned from claiming for a second home if their nearest railway station is within 60 minutes of the Houses of Parliament. Government to break up the banks is the headline in The Independent. Lloyds, Royal Bank of Scotland and Northern Rock will be broken up and parts of their businesses sold off to create three new banks. In the Financial Times, the race to become the first president of the European Union intensifies as Luxembourg's veteran Prime Minister puts himself forward as a potential rival to Tony Blair. 
Sam Allardyce thinks he'll be the next manager at Manchester United, according to a story in The Express. That claim comes from Wigan manager Roberto Martinez. The Mirror says Michael Owen's pushing his claim for an England recall after a typical predatory finish as Carling Cup holders Man United eased into the last eight of the competition with a comfortable 2-0 win over Barnsley. While The Sun writes how Sir Alex Ferguson's backed a referee's decision after Gary Neville was given a straight red card for a horrific tackle in that game. There's more on today's stories and breaking news at guardian.co.uk. Iraq is lobbying to become a nuclear player. Iraqi ministers have approached the French nuclear industry about rebuilding one of the reactors that was bombed in the first Gulf War. They've also contacted the International Atomic Energy Association and the United Nations to find ways around resolutions that ban Iraq from having any nuclear capacity. The Guardian's Martin Chuloff is in Baghdad. I asked him why Iraq wants to revive its nuclear industry. I think Iraqi politicians are looking around and they're seeing that they're out of options as far as delivering services to their to their constituents. They've got no electricity capacity or very little, very little water capacity and uh, not much for science and technology. So they figure now that a new reactor may help them serve their energy needs and uh, all sorts of other scientific and health needs that uh, might lead them forward. Iraq hasn't had a very happy history with its nuclear technology. It certainly hasn't. Uh, three decades of Saddam during which he attempted to May build and maintain a nuclear program ended in, the, ended in catastrophe. All three reactors were bombed and destroyed and he was invaded twice, partly on the basis that he had these reactors. So it's been a long and fraught and ultimately fruitless history with nuclear energy in Iraq. But uh, now, six years after Saddam was ousted, the Iraqis are looking to have another go at it. But how could Iraq ensure that any new nuclear facility would be secure? And this is indeed the problem, and this is going to be a giant step, uh, a, a giant obstacle in, in getting any sort of approval. Iraq is a signatory to a number of non-proliferation treaties that were that were imposed after the invasion, and in which uh, a number of uh, yellow cake uh, barrels did in fact go missing. There are some contaminants out here in the Iraqi community that have not been recovered in six years since. Iraq has shown a very limited capacity to secure its essential sites, including four of its ministries, which have been destroyed over the past three months by suicide bombers who have been able to drive straight up to the gates. So it's a very real risk and a very real concern that if Iraq did indeed go nuclear again, there would not be the capacity to secure these highly, highly sensitive sites. These are going to be the obstacles they will face in dealing with the regulatory bodies, the international Atomic Energy Association, the UN, and all sorts of others who want to see a stable Iraq before big-ticket items like this are back on the table. Martin Chulov, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash Iraq, also on The Guardian's website today. I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily feature section. In today's issue, Stephen Moss has been to Newmarket to meet retired champion racehorse See the Stars, who's about to embark on his career in the lucrative stud industry. Meanwhile, research from Sussex University suggests no one is holding formal dinner parties anymore, so we asked food experts if this is indeed the case. And Hadley Freeman tells us why she doesn't have a problem with Obama's male-only White House basketball trips. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash G2. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, number 10 Downing Street and the Treasury argue over the fate of Northern Rock. 
Labour Party is scrabbling around for policies that um, are distinctive and ones that sort of have a tradition within its own party and mutuals and co-ops certainly have that. But first, rescuers are looking for a British couple feared to have been seized by pirates off the east coast of Africa. Paul and Rachel Chandler were sailing from the Seychelles to Tanzania but they haven't been heard from since Friday. The Guardian's East Africa correspondent, Zan Rice, is in Nairobi. We know that they were sailing west from the Seychelles towards the Amaranti Islands um, last week, and on Friday they, they set off a, a distress signal, distress beacon. And since then, there's been, there's been no, no, um, no, no sight or sound of them. There's been a claim from, from people in Somalia that, that Somali pirates have in fact hijacked the ship, but that's yet to be confirmed. If uh, that is indeed the case, what would the options be for the British authorities? Well, very, very difficult. I mean, in the vast majority of cases where ships are hijacked off off, um, Somalia, there's negotiations often taking several months and ransom is paid. Um, Hostages are inevitably released unharmed and and the boat is released as well. In the case of yachts, however, private yachts is, is slightly different because... The, the pirates would normally contact the owners of the ship to, um, to demand a ransom and they're often big cargo companies or shipping companies and can get a, get a fairly decent sum of money. In the case of yachts, it's difficult because the owner of the yacht is, um, is actually one of the hostages. So how do you, who do you send the ransom d- demand to? Do you send it to the British government? So it's, it's a very tricky situation in this case. The, the French authorities have in the past um, taken military action against pirates who've, who've taken three French yachts. But the, mo- the most recent case ended in tragedy when, they, when the French captain of the yacht was, was killed um, in a shootout with the pirates. Do we know why this couple was sailing in what are known to be dangerous waters? Yeah, I mean, that, that is a good question. I mean, there are, it seems they have been sailing around the world um, for a couple of years and they're very, very um, experienced and able crew. Um, they would have known what they were getting into. Um, indeed, uh, on their blog, they did mention the dangers of Somali pirates. It's hard to say. I mean, the only thing to say perhaps in their, in their defense is that the, the pirates are, are constantly shifting their territory and they are moving further and further south from Somalia down into the Mozambican Channel. And uh, perhaps a year ago, these would have been safe waters, but at the moment, they, they're certainly not. And is there anything the rest of the world can do to make the seas off Somalia any safer? Um, it seems not. Uh, at the moment, there's, there's 30 or more than 30 international warships in the Gulf of Aden to the north of Somalia or the Indian Ocean um, uh, off the east coast. Um, and still, they, they seem unable to, to stop the piracy. Um, the monsoon season is over, so piracy season has started. And, and already this month, there have been several significant captures of ships. I mean, last week, they took a Chinese boat with 25 Chinese sailors um, north of the Seychelles. So it seems no matter how many warships there are, um, the, the area that pirates are now patrolling is so vast um, that they can, they can attack um, pretty much at will. Zan Rice. Number 10 officials want Northern Rock to be remutualised and turned into a building society. But the Treasury says if it was sold, that would mean an extra $11 billion for the taxpayer ahead of a general election. In the Guardian's Westminster office, our political correspondent Allegra Stratton explains the attraction of remutualisation. 
you have this sort of policy one, there's a political one, and then there's a, um, one about sort of the stability of the finance sector. The policy one is that Labour Party is scrabbling around for policies that um, are distinctive and ones that sort of have a tradition within its own party. And mutuals and co-ops certainly have that. Um, the part of the, the party was sort of came out of the foundations of those sorts of ideas. And in terms of the politics of it, it's not clear what David Cameron's response would be. David Cameron said there is such a thing as society. It's just not the same as the state. So he has this big riff about civic society and um, community groups. And this would sort of be sort of fit within that, whether he would necessarily go the whole hog and want it rolled out at such a high level, something like a Northern Rock Bank. We, we, we just we just couldn't second guess. So it'd be interesting to see what they did on that. And then in terms of sort of long term stability, of the financial sector, where you don't have risk at, at every level a mutual would be more li- likely to guard against that because it would sort of um, there would be there wouldn't so much be shareholder interest there would be the shareholder would be the employee the shareholder would also be the person who has the service has bought the service within the, the mutual bank so sort of at all sorts of levels you can see why it's extremely appealing to people within Downing Street. But there are concrete political advantages to selling it off yeah, eleven billion pounds. But I mean, the, it's a sad, it's a sad reality that actually, when you've got public borrowing next year, one hundred and seventy-five billion, the eleven billion that uh, Northern Rock currently has from us, the taxpayers, actually, you know, is that is talked about as actually not that much money. You 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 can see how there would be a bounce got from any party that sold it off and was able to say, look, we brought eleven billion back in house. So it's not it's not actually. Of course, there would be a bounce, but would the bounce be more politically important? than a kind of vivified um, Labour Party platform. Today, the European Commission is expected to rule on whether the government broke EU rules in the way that Northern Rock was sold off. What are we expecting them to decide? What what has been on the cards for a long time, and this is related to ha- how the government can eventually sell off uh, the, the, the Northern Rock, whether it can split, or any buyer is not necessarily going to want to buy the bits of Northern Rock that, uh, Rock that are rotten through and through. They would essentially be, hopefully, um, policy wonks think, put into a bad bank and the good bits, um, the high quality mortgages would be put into a good one. And it's that good one that could possibly be sold off. And it's the good arm that would possibly be the bit that would make the money for the government that would cause it the bounce we were just talking about. What we has been speculated about is that something like Virgin and indeed Tesco's, their financial arms that are sort of quite small and nascent and in need of development, something that a a Northern Rock good banking book would help them do. What we're expecting is that they would put in a bid. Two weeks ago, Virgin Money, the financial arm of Branson's Virgin Company, they applied for a licence to do high street banking. So so the sort of, we've got the vultures circling, if you like, and the EU is supposed to rule on whether this split is allowed to even happen. Um, And my sources when I put it to them and say, well, Virgin will get it, won't they? Because it's you know, very appealing. You can see the, the political arguments for, for giving it, well, for, for, for them being in the running. And the, these people said, um, no, we've got different ideas. Allegra Stratton. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. That's the sound of a flock of starlings, some of Britain's most common birds, but whose numbers are declining. Meanwhile, some of Britain's rarest birds, including the bittern, avocet and osprey, have become more common over the last decade. That's according to a report today from conservation groups, which says that endangered species are making a comeback. David Adams, our environment correspondent. 
It seems that way. Yeah, this is the these are the results of an annual survey that the RSPB and uh, all sorts of other conservation organisations put together. They have more than 200 species that they send all these thousands of volunteers out to basically count, and then they publish the results. And um, yeah, it seems that actually some of the uh, birds that we've been worried about over the last decade, they aren't out of the woods yet, but, but certainly some of them seem to be increasing. What's the reason for that? Well, there's a number of reasons. I think I think it depends on the species that you look at. Um, I suppose the most obvious reason is that the birds that are in danger are the ones that get the most attention. So, so you introduce conservation measures to try and protect them, and in some cases, like the red kites, you actually deliberately reintroduce them. And, and so you're going from quite a low base, I suppose. And, and maybe the species that are, that are doing slightly better, you don't, you don't focus on so much. And meanwhile, some of the common species of bird aren't doing so well. Well, that's right. This is, this is, this is the flip side of it. The species that, that we might thought of as being very common are actually, the numbers are decreasing. Now, there are probably still more of those than there are of the, what we thought of the rare species, but, but the trend is different. I mean, trends in a lot of the farmland birds, for example, what people think of as very common birds like the starling um, are, are really struggling. It's quite interesting as well that uh, um, efforts, whatever efforts are made in this country, because birds migrate, there has to be some sort of international cooperation with other uh, conservation groups abroad. Exactly, yeah. The migratory birds are, are one of the sources of, of concern um, because uh, a number of them, the, the, the numbers have gone down a lot in, in the last few years. And, and they're not quite sure why that is because we don't know an awful lot about where all these birds go to and what they get up to. Um, we just know that fewer of them are coming back each year and so I think that's where there is still a need for for greater conservation efforts is to try and sort of spread the net almost and see if we can repeat the success that we've had in the UK with some of these birds that, that go elsewhere. David Adam. The convenient store chain Spa has translated its wine labels into what it says are regional dialects. It says it wants its customers to understand the often complex information on wine labels and it also wants to provide them with a bit of fun. This is what Spa says on its website is a Somerset accent. All right, my lover. Here's one hell of a Merlot. Be stinking amina civvies, there'll be bloody handsome when you crossed her oggy. Perfect to share with a party as he ain't heavy. Me gar be a pretty wine. Cheers. And this is what the company claims is the same information in Scouse. Hey, it's a totally boss bottle of Merlot. Smells of blackberry, chalky, a brew, and some toffees. It's juicy and complex like. Tis bevy's top with most ground, especially with me man Scouse. Telling you, this is Jeff out of Bevy. That'll leave yous and his mates made up over your sayers pasty. Spa's chief wine buyer is Laura Jewell. We've used a number of different dialects. We've produced eight as a trial and really just translated a tasting note into those dialects to reflect the wide geographical sort of range of our customers from Scottish in the north to Somerset in the south. People don't really talk like that, do they? They, um, we, we want people to have a bit of fun with our wine labelling and of course we recognise that there are many different dialects and regional variations on dialects and we just wanted to make our labels a bit more accessible to customers in general and see how they reacted to it. So yes, it's a, it's a bit of fun as well as um, getting some feedback from our customers. Isn't it incredibly patronising? 
I don't think we feel that it's um, patronising or stereotyping. We know that people don't don't speak that way, and I think they'll recognise that it's, uh, it's it's a bit of fun to make our labels more accessible. But if shoppers are confused by the language on the back of wine labels, why can't you just write it in clearer English? Well, that is also part of our our wine rebrand. We are redesigning all our own labels at the moment, and we are using simple language that tells people what the wine will taste like, rather than complexities of winemaking, winemaking technicalities, and that kind of thing. But the serious point is that the wine industry should be able to describe its products better to attract more customers. Yes, and that's certainly what we're we're hoping to do. We take our quality and value for money of our wines very seriously, but but we believe that wine should be a fun experience as well. Laura Jewell from Spa. Phil Maynard and Andy Duckworth were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.